So chapter 12 is the scene size up. Chapter 11 and now chapter 12, we're kind of starting to get into the patient assessment process. Chapter 12, the scene size up. Scene size up is actually the first step of the patient assessment process, and that's what we'll discuss in this chapter. So an introduction. The pre-hospital setting is an uncontrolled environment. And again, that's kind of one of the things that makes us pretty unique. Patients don't oftentimes come to us. We go out to the patients. We go in on wrecks, roadways, residents, etc. Failing to recognize the hazards of a scene has high costs. So you can end up getting killed by not evaluating your scene identifying potential hazards. So you must pay close attention to the scene size up on every single call. Scene safety is a dynamic and ongoing process and the scene size up is as well. We, we do the scene size up first and initially, but we are continuously reassessing the scene for safety issues throughout the entirety of the time that we're on that scene. And there are three basic goals of the scene size up. First one is safety concerns. We want to identify any hazards that may be present that would prevent or that could cause us from getting injured. We also want to determine the nature of illness. What's going on with the patient? Is this a medical versus trauma? And lastly, we need to recognize the need for additional resources. Do we need more ambulances? Do we need fire department for lift assists, et cetera? Form a good scene size up, you'll need to evaluate the following components in a stepwise manner. And again, we're gonna break these down individually. First part of that is, is necessary standard precautions, making sure we're wearing our PPE, et cetera. We need to evaluate the scene for safety hazards, determine the mechanism of injury, if it's trauma, nature of illness, if it's a medical patient, determine how many patients we have. And again, last thing, based on all that, we need to determine the need for additional resources. Do we need help? So violence towards EMS personnel. So violence towards EMS personnel must be a constant consideration in your scene size up and safety precautions. And unfortunately, EMS providers getting assaulted is fairly common. In a recent study published in pre-hospital emergency care, the authors found that 69% of EMS personnel studied have experienced some form of violence over the preceding year. So again, it does happen. <clears throat> so breaking this down, standard precautions and other personal protection precautions. So personal protective equipment or PPE ranges from examination gloves, again, gloves we wear on every single patient contact, to complex breathing apparatus, helmets, and other gears. Again, it's gonna be very dependent on the situation uh, is gonna determine what type of PPE that we wear. Again, seeing patient condition dictates PPE. With that being said, 
If it is a complex piece of equipment like a breathing apparatus, we will not use complex PPE if we have not been properly trained on how to use it. In general, we want to use the same level of PPE being used by other personnel, such as firefighters, factory workers, again, if properly trained to do so. Again, fire department, they've been trained on SCBAs, they're air pads. We, as EMS, do not get trained on that. So if the situation requires an SCBA, we're not going to enter that situation. We're going to stand back, let the fire department go uh, get them, extricate them, bring them to us at a safe distance. Again, if not trained and the equipment is needed, do not enter the scene. Remain at a safe distance and allow those who are trained to bring the patient to you or make the scene safe for our entry. Again, we're not going to rush into a scene that requires an SCBA if we're not properly trained to, do, to wear it. So firefighters wearing pr protective gear at the scene of an MVC. If they're cutting a vehicle, extricating, uh, they're going to be wearing a lot of PPE. They're wearing their bunker gear, their turnout gear. They're also closer on a roadway, so they're wearing reflective vests as well. Helmets, all of them should, it's hard to tell, but if they're cutting, they should all have eye protection on as well. Scene safety is an assessment of a scene to ensure the well-being of the EMTs, patients, and bystanders. And again, our priorities of safety falls in that order. My safety is the most important. Behind that, then is my partners and other first responders. Then it's the patient safety. And lastly, I'm worried about bystander safety. Ensuring scene safety is a dynamic and ongoing process. Again, this, these scenes can change very quickly. Scene safety requires EMTs to exercise leadership to take controls of the scene. If you see something dangerous, you have an obligation to speak up and tell people, hey, stay away from that, or I don't feel comfortable entering the scene, we need to go stage, et cetera. <clears throat> this starts, the moment we get dispatched to a call, our scene size up is going to start. We're going to use that information that we hear from dispatch. 9742, need you route to 5131 Aberdeen, which is a bar, for a shooting. Is there going to be safety concerns just based on that call right there? Yeah, a lot. We're going to a bar and we're dealing with violence, shooting. So that's something that we immediately start thinking about. Again, dispatch information can help you anticipate safety needs, but that is only a starting point. Dispatchers may not have a full, clear picture of what's going on, and they can only go off by what a caller is telling them. So callers may lie trying to avoid police automatically getting dispatched to that scene, et cetera. Even routine sounding dispatches can lead to dangerous scenes as well. You get dispatched for a 63-year-old female that's fallen. Sounds pretty benign, but again, dispatch may not have the full picture, so safety is still something that we are constantly thinking about, even if it's very benign sounding. So hazards can include something that dispatch may relate to us, angry, hostile patients or bystanders on scene, 
if we're dealing with hazardous materials, the possibility of getting exposed to infectious diseases, if we're going to a known crime scene, or if we're coming across down power lines, especially for car wrecks. Again, these are things that we need to be on the lookout for as we're pulling up. Also, part of our scene size up is considering the need for additional or specialized resources. So again, if we have multiple patients, we need to quickly request additional resources. We're going to need more ambulances. We're going to need the fire department for lifting assist. We're going to need PD for crowd control, et cetera. Some scenes involve situations that require resources and training beyond that of EMT. So if we're dealing with a hazardous material, we have a semi that is crashed and there's placards on it indicating that they were hauling hazardous material. We don't have much training in hazardous materials in EMS. That function tends to fall in the fire department. So request the hazmat team. Extrications, again, patients trapped inside a vehicle, fire department typically handles that. Water rescues, high angle rescues, et cetera. Down power lines, again, are something that's really possibly dangerous, something that we keep an eye on. We get on scene, we notice down power lines. We're first on scene, additional resources. We're going to need somebody from the power company to come and isolate or to deactivate those lines so we can gain access and work. Consider scene characteristics. EMT safety, again, is your primary importance. Injured. EMT cannot provide emergency care. And again, resources may be diverted from the patient to the injured. So again, you're not helping anyone if you rush in trying to be the hero and you yourself get injured. So if we're going on a car wreck, there's down power lines, I rush to try to get to the patient, say, screw it, screw the down power lines, I'll just jump over my fat ass walks over there and I don't clear them and I get electrocuted and go down. So now we have multiple patients and we're now we're wasting additional resources. So this call initially only needed one ambulance to take care of the patient. Now it's going to require at least three ambulances. One for the additional pet for the main, the normal patient. My ambulance is out of commission because I'm injured and a third ambulance to come pick me up. So again, we're wasting resources now. Not only that, who do you think my partner is going to be more, is going to help first? Me, who we've worked together for years, that are both EMS or a complete stranger. So not only that, they're going to treat me first. So we're also delaying the initial response time to the primary patient. So again, don't be a hero. You're going to cause more damage than you are good most of the time. If, a vehicle, if we're working a crash scene and the vehicle is unstable, do not approach an unstable vehicle. This car may tip over and then crush you. If we're working on roadways, those are extremely dangerous situations for us. We have to be very cautious working on roadways. Wait for police to enter a crime scene or other volatile scene. If the Scene's unsafe, or we get into the scene and then it becomes unsafe, retreat, leave. 
Again, your safety is more important than anything else. Other safety concerns. If your service has portable radios, you need to wear your portable radio, bring it with you on scene. If something happens in that house and we get trapped, that portable radio is going to allow us to call our dispatch requesting help. Again, call for help from the appropriate agencies. Fire department, law enforcement, hazmat, electrical company, down power lines are involved. Somebody ran into a gas meter. We're going to call the gas company. And again, if the scene becomes hazardous and we're already on scene and it becomes hazardous, leave the scene. So for dealing with crash scenes, hazards from the crash or from traffic, <clears throat> from the crash and from traffic must be controlled. So again, two kind of major safety concerns. We want to know, is there down power lines? We got to be careful. Is there fuel leaking? Is there a fire to the car? Not only that, we have to be aware of oncoming traffic as well. So from the crash itself, we want to make sure that the vehicle is stable. If the vehicle is not stable, can you safely make it stable or are additional personnel and equipment necessary? We have no equipment on an ambulance to stabilize an unstable vehicle. Fire department does. So again, that would be a fire department function. Are power lines involved? If we have down power lines, stay away from the scene. Uh, wait till they are turned off. Uh, down, we always assume down power lines are active, even if they're completely still, they're not arcing or jumping or moving. Always assume down power lines are active until somebody that knows tells us otherwise. Jagged metal, broken glass, a threat. Also, we need to pay attention to the airbags. Undeployed airbags can be extremely dangerous for us if we're starting to crawl in or stick our heads inside that vehicle. Always keep your head and body away from undeployed airbag in case they deploy after extrication or during extrication. Is there fuel leaking from the vehicle? If so, is there an ignition source nearby where we have to worry about fire? Is there a fire? Again, something that we need to be concerned about. We do carry, we're mandated to carry fire extinguishers on our trucks. Our little Tiny-ass fire extinguishers ain't going to do much for a car fire, though. Are hazardous materials involved as well? And rule for hazardous materials, stay way back. Again, the, big, more, the biggest concern, in my opinion, dealing with crash scenes is protection from the moving traffic. So to reduce the incidences of being struck, it is required us, if we are working on or near a roadway, we need to wear a ANSI-approved reflective vest, a high-visibility reflective vest. At the same time, we need to do what we can to limit our time on scene to reduce the exposure to traffic. The quicker that we can get the patient off the side of the street, the safer it's going to be for us. And if we need to, shut down traffic on the roadway. At the very least, we always shut down at least one lane of traffic, the lane of traffic that we're working in. Again, preferably if we can shut down that entire road, we, we, we will. Most of the time though, that is not practical. But at the very least, you need to give yourself, close off the road, the lane that we're working on. 
So again, there's an example of an ANSI Reblest high visibility color, yellow or orange typically. The higher the levels of the ANSI certification order it is, is based on the amount of reflective material on it. And the best that we use should have quite a bit of reflective material. So working a, a, a RET, things that we can do to help reduce being struck by the traffic. We can place flares or cones. I don't know of any EMS service that carries flares. Some services do carry cones, but we can put cones behind our truck, behind that incident scene, giving drivers more visibility and allowing them more time to get over. That middle one's probably the most important. Place vehicles strategically so they protect the scene. If we are working on a roadway, we need to have an emergency vehicle as a block. Keep an emergency vehicle between you and the flow of traffic at all times. And again, do as much work as possible out of the traffic flow. And you keep your head on the swivel. Don't turn your back or your head to moving traffic. We do not want to jump dividers on highways to provide emergency care. We need our truck needs to be in the same lane of traffic, direction of traffic as that crash scene. The reason being is we need our truck as a block. Now, there are certain situations where if we already have multiple fire crews on that that lane blocking traffic force, then it's possibly safe for us to make that decision to jump that barrier. So on, as a general rule though, we need, our truck needs to be behind us in front of oncoming traffic again to provide us that block. Do what we can to reduce unnecessary scene lighting that may distract or impair visibility in traffic. Our ambulances have floodlights on the box. We don't need to have those floodlights turned on facing oncoming traffic. It needs to be facing the wreck scene, not oncoming traffic. So turn off those floodlights so we're not blinding or distracting other drivers. If we are using our vehicle as a block, so here's the crash site, here's our ambulance, we need to turn the wheels of the parked emergency vehicle so they are pointed away from the scene. When we park, Turn your wheels one direction or another. So if we do get rear-ended, it's not going to push our ambulance straight into the crash scene. It'll push it off to the side around us. And avoid stopping or standing in between vehicles. Those are those crush sites. If that truck does get rear-ended and we're standing right in front of it behind another car, we're going to get pinned and crushed in between those two vehicles. Other rescue scenes that may require specialized training and equipment. Hazardous materials, chemical, biological, nuclear weapons. Patient is stranded or injured on heights. Patient was climbing a water tower and got hurt halfway up the water tower. How are we going to get that patient down? Not my problem. I'm scared of heights. It's going to be a fire department problem. Natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, very uh, have to be very prepared for those types of situations. Underground areas, confined spaces. Collapses, cave-ins, again, these typically have specialized rescue teams. And again, most of the time, this is a fire department function. Storage tank, vats, silos, or bins. Suffocant, uh, suffocation hazards, regardless of what the contents is. 
contents in that silo may be corn, for example. Again, the big danger for silos and bins is getting sucked in and trapped and suffocated. Farm equipment, something, silos, bins, farm equipment, we deal a lot with those around this area. If we're working on unstable surfaces or slopes, so a vehicle's kind of gone over a ledge and is on the side of a hill, major, large, steep hill. We need to remember to secure the patient to the hillside as well as the vehicle to the hillside. So if something does slide, the patient hopefully is tied down and they're not going to slide or fall down as well. Be sure that vehicles that have gone over the embankment or over embankments are secured before we start crawling in it or around it. And again, this won't be us crawling in or around, probably, probably the fire department. We need to be aware of loose rocks and stones that may be knocked down to your position. For us on EMS, we need to be aware if we're walking around the top, be very cautious that we're not kicking any loose rocks or stones down towards whoever's down there doing the, the rescue. Ice. <clears throat> Ice can be very dangerous. Using things like sand, salt, gravel may assist with maneuvering. Don't see this too frequently here, but we do not need to walk on frozen lakes or frozen ponds if we don't know if it's safe to do so. If an ice surface is safe, use non-skid surface such as a tarp or rug for operations. Again, with ice rescues, frozen lakes, ponds, that is a very specialized rescue situation. So we're not gonna participate unless we have the training to do so. So an example right there of an ice rescue, this is obviously a training because the people in the water are wearing protective suits. But again, very specialized. You gotta be very cautious with these type of rescues. Again, we're not gonna have that training in this area especially, so we will typically do not participate in those. <clears throat> Water rescues. Retrieving a patient from a swimming pool will be difficult and never should be attempted alone. So if we go on a kid drowning, we get on scene and the kid's still in the pool. If we feel confident getting in the pool to try to rescue the kid, we can do so again if we feel comfortable. But that being said, it is going to be more difficult than just swimming in a pool. And if you do get into the water, you need to at least have another rescuer on scene watching out for you in case you get in trouble. Rescues in open water, though, is specialized technique that requires specialized training and equipment. And swift water rescue or rescuing a patient in moving water is very complicated and very dangerous because of that force of the current. So again, typically we should not attempt the rescue unless we are trained to do so. So an example of swift water rescue, looks like a flash flood, vehicle got swept away. They're using a ladder bridging to the bank, to the car, and they're having the people crawl to them. Even in this case, the fire department, whoever's performing that rescue, they're gonna try to avoid getting in the water themselves if they can do so. Toxic substances, low oxygen areas, Scenes such as tanker, uh, tanker spills, pipeline ruptures, heavy smoke conditions, 
Again, those require specialized assistance. So they're going to be suffocant hazards. Even confined spaces, very tight quarters, may be low in oxygen or high in other toxic substances as well. So a confined space rescue, again, there's teams that are trained in how to do that. And if, say, that it is a confined or small space and there are multiple patients all complaining of similar signs and symptoms, that should cue us up or start us to getting suspicious. Well, they all have the same signs and symptoms. They are probably exposed to a, a toxic substance. So we need to start thinking about poisonings, et cetera. <clears throat> Clandestine drug operations. Look for chemicals such as ephedrine, pseudoephedrine, iodine, hydrochloric acid, ether, and anhydrous ammonia. Most of those chemicals are going to be used for meth cooking. If you are not trained to make the environment safe in such situation, you must contact specialized rescue or fire units. If we walk into a residence and we look around and we notice, hey, this looks like a damn drug lab, that is automatically going to be considered a hazmat situation. As soon as we have that suspicion, we immediately turn around and walk out. If they're actively cooking something, et cetera, don't mess or touch anything. A lot of those chemicals during the cooking process can become unstable. And something as simple as turning off the heat or taking something off the heat at the wrong time can cause a bad reaction. So we don't touch anything. We walk in, hey, this looks like a drug lab. Turn around, leave the scene, contact police department, contact hazmat. Not only that, they're cooking an illegal substance, so they're engaging in criminal activity. High likelihood of violence from them assaulting, they're going to have weapons probably, and they can also booby trap these labs as well. So a couple examples of clandestine drug labs here. Again, this is the low-tech side of it where they have a propane bottle, probably doesn't have propane in it, may have other substances, the gases in it. So they just have a bunch of chemicals thrown about their, their room, probably are cooking it on a, um, a heating, uh, just a stovetop uh, cooker. Here's a lot more high sophisticated, but again, just as, probably not as dangerous, but still very dangerous situation. You can even see mobile drug labs and something that we kind of see here Ever so often, patients will cook meth in the back of their vehicle, drive it out into a turn road on a cornfield where nobody can see them cooking. They got coverage or protection all the way around them. So again, they may cook it inside their vehicle. And you can see right here, they have a gun inside the vehicle. And again, they may also be booby trapped as well. Here's an unexploded one. In this case, this looks like an incendiary device probably was designed to inflict damage to whoever's in there and probably was designed to burn any evidence of the, the drug lab as well. Okay, any questions? Still on scene size up, determining scene safety for dealing with Crime scenes. Again, your safety is still the most important aspect. 
if we're going to a, a known or potentially known dangerous situation, we're not even going to go on scene first. We're going to wait for the police department to arrive on scene before we attempt to enter. So we will drive to the call, but we'll stay back two or three blocks and we'll stage. We'll wait for law enforcement to get on scene. They'll tell our dispatchers, hey, it's clear for that ambulance to come up. Once they tell us it's clear, now we can enter. If we arrive at a scene, not really sure what's going on, we get on scene and now we start feeling uneasy or you suspect that a threat might exist, again, do not enter the scene. Get back in your ambulance, drive two or three blocks away, tell dispatch, hey, something didn't seem right, we're not gonna enter, we'll let law enforcement enter first. If we are approaching suspected crime scenes, when we're arriving at the scene, some things that we can do that can help minimize the risk to us. Again, ideal situation, law enforcement should already be on scene before us. Just turn off the siren and emergency lights. We can arrive discreetly. We're gonna draw less attention. And again, if we get on scene and feel uneasy, leave the scene. And also park two or three houses away. Again, we're just arriving more discreetly doing it this way. And you'll notice law enforcement does a lot of these as well. Law enforcement's getting dispatched to a house. They do not park directly in front of the house. They park two or three houses down. Studying the crowd where a large crowd is starting to gather. We want to assess that crowd. The size of the crowd, though, is less important than its mood. Are they angry? hostile, shouting explicitives, etc. And do not allow yourself to be pulled into the chaos if chaos is present. And if the crowd does seem hostile again, retreat. Don't enter the scene. While we're approaching the scene, walking up to the scene, walk on the grass not the sidewalk. They're going to expect us to be walking on the sidewalk. Again, all we're trying to do is kind of conceal our arrival. If it's dark outside and we're holding a flashlight, using a flashlight to walk up, we want to hold the flashlight off to the side of us, not directly in front of us. If somebody does decide to start shooting at whoever walks up and all they see is the flashlight, they're going to start shooting at the light. So if we're holding it beside us, at least their point of aim is not going to be directly in front or not directly at us. We walk single file. That's going to reduce our profile as we are walking up. So my question is, who, who walks in front? If, say it's me and Alex are walking up on a potentially dangerous situation and we're walking single file. Who walks in front, me or Alex? Guess who rock, paper, scissors for that one? But somebody else give me their thoughts. If it's me and Alex, I have a lot more experience. I'm higher certified. Guess what, buddy? Thanks for the cover. You're going to go in front. That's just me personally. And that's more of a joke than anything. That's just something y'all need to decide as you're walking up. There's no right or wrong answer. As we're walking up as well, make sure that we're kind of scanning around, looking for places of concealment and cover. If something does happen, where can I retreat to? There is a difference between concealment and cover. Concealment 
only refers to we are hiding the visibility of us. It will not provide us protection from projectiles, like if we're getting shot at. Cover will do both. Cover will hide our appearance, our visibility, and will provide us some cover if we are getting shot at or from projectiles. Look at windows and corners. Again, to scan that scene, looking for anything out of the ordinary. Once we approach the house and we're going to knock on the door, do not stand in front directly in front of the door while we knock. Stand to the sides of the door. Again, if somebody just starts shooting when they hear knocking, they're going to shoot through the center of the door or off to the side of it. We're going to have more cover as well. And again, if we go inside that house, continuously just scanning and looking around and always know where an escape route will be. Don't let anybody block a potential escape route for you. So if things do turn bad, we have a clear path to exit. So again, we're walking up with the possibility of a dangerous situation, hold the flashlight to the side of your body, not directly in front. Again, single file. Again, that's just kind of lower under our profile. Knock, stand on the side of the door, not directly in front of it. If we're at, already at patient's side at a suspected crime scene, our priority, if we're assigned to an ambulance, our priority is always going to be, other than you know our own safety, is going to be caring for the patient. But again, protect yourself and your partner. Our safety still is more important than anybody's. So even if we've already made contact with the patient and we're talking to the patient, if things de-escalate and it gets really scary really quickly, we can leave without the patient. If Now, if we can safely do so, bring the patient with us and leave, but if, if it's us or them, it's going to be us. We are going to leave without the patient. And be aware that the perpetrator still might be on the scene. So we get dispatched to assault. We go start assessing the patient, asking, well, who did this to you? Oh, it was my boyfriend. Well, where's your boyfriend at? Well, he's upstairs in his bedroom. Shit. That's not a safe scene with them both still in the house. That case, Get the patient, get back to your truck if we even need to, drive two blocks away, pull over before we really start assessing the patient. Let's say we get into, already get into a residence. Little old lady was robbed. We asked them who did this. She says her neighbor that lives three doors down. Or do you know where the neighbor's at? Yeah, he's probably just down the street there. At that point, we're already on scene we're kind of already protected inside the residence. Stay with the patient at that point. Call law enforcement. I would be more scared to leave that house, that protection, to make it back to the truck than I would be to stay in the house. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So if the patient's not physically in the building, but they're in the area, we're probably safe to stay inside that residence. Call law enforcement. Wait till law enforcement gets in that area before we go back outside. Ensure the police have been called and followed local protocols. Any type of suspected criminal activity, drug abuse, even alcohol. If we get dispatched to somebody that's known drunk, law enforcement probably needs to be going with us. So if they weren't already previously dispatched, we get on scene, we think we're going to need them for a crime investigation. Go ahead and make sure that they're coming. Talk to your dispatch request law enforcement. 
if we're already at a secured crime scene, so law enforcement's on scene, they've made the scene safe for us, we know it's safe for us to approach. There are some things that we do need to take care of or remember while we're in an active crime scene. We need to limit the number of resources if possible. Over investigation of the crime, over trying to convict somebody, find the, find the bad guy, everybody's priority at that crime scene needs to be caring for the sick or injured. So if we need five rescuers in there to take care of the patient, send five rescuers in there. Again, we're much more worried about caring for the patient than convictions or finding out you've done it. But if we know kind of what we're getting into, let's say we're going to a major crime scene, law enforcement tells us, hey man, there's a dude in there that shot in the head. We know he's dead. We just need y'all to come in there to make it official. We're gonna pronounce him. We don't really pronounce in Texas. We just make the determination that they're unviable. We're not going to work the call. So if that's the case, do we need five people in there to say, hey, yep, this dude's head's missing. Do, it. do we need to work? No. So limit the number of resources. It may be just one or two of us going in there to call the patient dead. Again, just listen to law enforcement. They've been doing it long enough. Everybody pretty much knows what a dead body is going to look like. If we're kind of in that situation as well, and bystanders are still on that crime scene, law enforcement's going to do a very good job. They're going to try to get bystanders out of a crime scene quickly. But if we're on scene with bystanders, don't allow the bystanders to touch or move or manipulate anything at a known crime scene. So be careful how you introduce yourself to the patient or to family members, especially at this day and age with social media and so forth. You give them both your first and last name they're probably going to be able to find you on social media. So, yeah, we may only want to use last names for certain situations or just your first name in certain situations as well. Just as a note, in the state of Texas, your uniform or you have to have an, you either have to have it on your uniform or your a name badge that is is visible first initial, last name and certification level. So, if I'm having to introduce myself to a patient, that I'm worried about knowing my true identity, I'm probably only going to use my last name when talking to them. Makes sense what I'm saying. Makes it harder to find. And I don't know if any of y'all have cop friends or not. Most people that are police officers, they use different names and they're giving legal names on social media for that reason as well. So people can't find them or it's harder to find them. Patient may be a perpetrator as well. I remember very vividly uh, multiple murders. This one guy killed two or three people at a residence. My patient was the murderer. He stabbed him with a knife and sliced the hell out of the webbing in both fingers. So just because he's sick, injured, doesn't mean he's a good guy. He, bad guys get hurt and injured as well. Having the EMT keep watch on the area. If we get in a dangerous situation where we're kind of worried about the crowds, bystanders, etc., we may have one person's going to be solely focused on caring for the patient. The other person, the EMT, is just going to keep a watch on the scene, kind of watching my back while I'm treating the patient, making sure nobody else comes up on us or approaches us. And again, our responsibility assigned by that ambulance is caring for the patients. We are not responsible for investigation pointing things out to law enforcement, snooping around the crime scene, et cetera. Our goal is to take care of patients. But if appropriate, we should assist the police in doing their jobs as well. Our patient's unresponsive. We're starting to load, transport them, getting them ready to go. 
law enforcement says, hey, does that patient have a ID on them? We can search their pockets and try to get law enforcement an ID, et cetera. Again, we can help police with whatever they need us to within reason, obviously, as long as it does not delay patient transport. We have a seriously hurt or sick person where the patient needs to get to the hospital quickly. Law enforcement tells us, hey, y'all hold on for a few minutes. I don't want you to transport yet because I want to ask this patient some questions. Nope, sorry. He's pretty sick. We need to get him to the hospital. If you want to ask him questions, you can ask him at the hospital. So we have to be that advocate for the patient. Do not disturb any evidence unless it's medically necessary to do so. Very important. Don't touch anything that we don't need to touch. Don't move furniture if we don't have to. Now, if we have to, we have to. Say our patient's in the back bedroom and we there's the only way to get him out is with our stretcher, but there's a couch blocking our way. So we need to, in order to care for our patient, we need to move that couch a little bit to get our stretcher to the patient. If we need to do it, we need to do it. If we do move evidence, make sure that we are telling law enforcement on scene if they're there and that we document the hell out of it, that we moved it, this is why we moved it, etc. But again, if we have to move something in order to properly care for our patients, move whatever it is. Again, our priority is treating and trying to save a life, not convictions. Do not touch or move suspected weapons unless moving the weapon is necessary. And a perfect example of this is suicide by gun. Self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, patient shoots himself, falls out, but the gun is still in their hand. Do we do I feel safe caring for a patient, treating a patient with a loaded pistol in their hand? No. We have to move the pistol. If that's the case, remove the gun by only touching the edges. And again, make sure we're documenting this as well. Tell law enforcement, hey, we got there, the gun was in his left hand. I picked it up by holding the edges of it and set it right there beside him two or three feet away. Make sure we tell the law enforcement that, make sure we document that as well. One thing that we do not do, even if you are very proficient with guns, we do not clear or make the gun safe. So if it's still loaded, we're not going to drop the magazine and clear the chamber. That's not our job. Pick the gun up, move it to a safe spot. Other than that, don't touch it. If the patient was shot, I'm sorry, wear gloves the entire time on the crime scene. That should go without saying you don't want your fingerprints ending up on a crime scene, even though it's probably pretty easy to explain why they were there. That's just a conversation you really don't want to have. So always wear gloves while we're on crime scenes. If the patient was shot or stabbed through their clothing, if we have to cut their clothing, we're going to cut their clothing. But we want to try to avoid cutting directly through the bullet wound, the hole, or that stab wound in that shirt. So we will just cut around it if we have to. If the patient is hanging or they had their hands or arms tied behind them, obviously we can't care for them if their arms are tied behind their back or they're hanging from a rope. Cut the rope. We can do that if we're first on scene. When we do cut the rope, though, we do not want to cut through the knot. Cut at the rope at a distance, and it's just where the rope. They will analyze and look at those knots, and they can help them with their evidence. We don't want to burden patients with crime questions. Again, that's not our role. Our role is to care for the patient. 
So certain questions may be medically relevant. If it's medically relevant, we have to ask. If it's not really medically relevant, then don't ask. Note who's at the scene when we arrive. If we're first on scene, wife or the patient's a female, heavy bruises, obviously was beaten. We need to note who was on scene with them. Patient stated that the we note we walked in, we noted two male individuals alongside the individual. Patient identified the individuals as her brother and her boyfriend. If they say the names, we can put her name, the names in the report as well. Realize patients will probably show extremes of emotions during crimes as well. And again, don't take it personally. And again, if we get called to a scene for a shooting, for example, and the patient is obviously dead, do not disturb anything. Only touch and move the body to the point that's necessary for us to determine that, hey, this patient's dead. So limit entry, call law enforcement, and stay on scene until law enforcement gets on scene if it's safe to do so. So if I walk in, the guy has a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the chin where his face is completely gone and his brain is gone. Obviously, he's not breathing. Do I even really need to touch that patient to determine he's dead or not? No. I may feel very quickly for a pulse, and that's it. But if the patient says prone, kind of the same thing, obviously dead, do I need to roll the patient over? No. So if it's obviously dead, do not even roll, manipulate, or touch the patient. Again, we still have to assess to the point where we feel comfortable making that decision they're dead, but other than that, don't move the body. And in especially in Texas in this area, our obligation, whether it's an obvious crime or it's an old person with a DNR that dies inside their residence at night, if we're first on scene of a dead body, we have to remain on that scene until we hand that scene over to law enforcement. So a dead body outside of the hospital, law enforcement has to be contacted. We have to remain on that scene until law enforcement gets on scene. Once they're on scene, they're gonna ask us questions, we give our report to them. After that point, it's their scene. We're free to go. Barroom scenes. People consuming alcohol can make a scene volatile and unpredictable. Not only that, inside the bar, that dark atmosphere can create challenges in seeing as well. So do what we can. We can ask the owners of the bar, or the manager of the bar, hey, can you turn on the lights while we're here? My experience dealing with bars is somebody gets hurt, sick in a bar, most of the time the employees are going to drag their asses outside because they don't want us and law enforcement coming into that bar. They can avoid it. So most of the times we find them in the parking lot. And again, if alcohol is involved, comments and questions can easily be misunderstood. They think we're getting aggressive with them and it can escalate into a volatile, violent situation. Don't turn your back to the other patrons. Again, one EMT can treat the patient while the other one is only keeping watch. Don't respond to verbal threats, but recognize the potential for escalation to assault. Again, we're working on a bar. We're getting surrounded by a lot of drunks, so there's a lot of drunks on scene. Our focus will, will shift to, hey, let's just get this patient to the truck, get in the back of the truck, lock our doors, now we have some protection, Then, rather than doing a lot of stuff on scene. So car passengers, say we're go, we get dispatched to somebody or a group of people passed out in a car on the shoulder of the loop. 
So if we're approaching those type of situations, we do need to be a little cautious. Just note that the person inside those vehicles, they may see just the lights, especially at night. It's kind of hard to see what type of vehicle is producing those lights. And our uniforms may be mistaken as police. So somebody that's doing something illegal may think we're cops. Most EMS services go to great pains to design uniforms or color their uniforms in a way where we look nothing like law enforcement. We never want to be mistaken for law enforcement. I love it. The ballistic, I've seen ballistic vests, uh, Velcro patches on the back of ballistic vests that say things like, I'm a paramedic, don't shoot, things like that. Again, whatever we can to not be uh, confused with the cop. Park at least one car length behind the vehicle with the wheels turning slightly to the left. We don't want to be right up on that vehicle. So we park a little ways back, turn that wheel to the left. That way, if something happens, we start walking up and they, get out, approach us with weapons or guns or something, and we need to rapidly back up, we will go back onto the roadway, not off into the shoulder into the ditch. Try to reflect your high beams off the rear view mirror as we approach too. It's going to do two things. It's going to illuminate, illuminate the entire inside of that vehicle so we can see what's going on. Not only that, it's going to kind of blind the driver as well or whoever is inside that vehicle. Make sure that we're documenting, again, if we we don't do these situations very much at all, but write down the license plate number and leave it in the ambulance. We, modern technology, we probably wouldn't do that. We would call dispatch, hey, we're out with this vehicle. It's a blue Honda with a license plate number this, and, and dispatch can keep note of all that. Try to see before we get right up on that vehicle, what, how many people's inside that car, where they're located at, but just be alert that somebody may be passed out or laying in the seat or laying in the floorboard and we're not going to be able to see them until we're right up on there. So we think they're all passed out. We're going to open the doors to check on them. We want to kind of catch them off guard and by surprise. So one of us will walk on the driver's side. The other will walk on the passenger side. Partner will open the passenger door quickly. As soon as we hear him opening the door, we're going to open the driver's side door a split second behind. And all we're trying to do is disorient them. They hear the passenger side, they're all turning that way. And suddenly we hear the driver's side door. So now they're kind of stunned. We catch them by surprise. So if they are reaching for anything, we can either try to stop it or get the hell out of it. <clears throat> if we're talking to them, do what we can to try to stay behind that center post. And law enforcement does this as well, especially, especially initially. You get pulled over, the cop's kind of standing behind that center post, because if they do try to shoot them, it's a lot harder to come around and shoot out that way, this way, than it is to point the gun right out beside them. So stay back, use that center post, that B post, as cover. And if we do have to get out of there quickly, retreat back the vehicle away quickly, 100 to 150 yards, before we even consider trying to turn around or make our next move. On this, if we're working some of these situations, we also need to take steps to protect our patients as well. Protect the patient from the environment and the attention of bystanders. If we're out working in the rain, we need to do what we can to dry the patient off, keep the patient warm. If it's cold outside, same thing. Also, trying to protect their privacy. 
And we may not want to cut off a shirt in the middle of Walmart, or we may not want to lift their shirts, do a 12 lead in the middle of Walmart. When able to control those factors, again, move the patient to the ambulance where we do have a lot more control of the situation and the environment. And even small efforts to make a patient more comfortable makes a huge difference. Ask them, are you hot? You're cold. You want me to adjust the air conditioner, the heater in the back of the truck? Do you want me to sit you up more, lay you down more flat? You need another blanket. All of that trying to make that patient more comfortable. Again, it goes back to building that rapport. It's going to make, if they trust us, they have a good relationship with us, it's going to make our jobs a lot easier in the long run. Again, our last priority, our safety is first, other first responders' safety is second, the patient is third, bystanders are last, but it is still something that we worry about. So if we do note hazards to the bystanders, if we can't eliminate those hazards, remove the, the bystanders from the scene. <clears throat> so we work, we're going up on this car wreck, major car wreck down a pretty busy street. Uh, a lot of bystanders coming out to see what's going on. We notice down power lines and bystanders don't see it and they're walking up towards the vehicles. We need to keep them back from those down power lines. Keeping the crowd out of the way can be challenging. Utilize other resources. Police officers, that's one of their responsibilities on big scenes is crowd control. So request those additional resources early. <clears throat> so for their own safety, bystanders must be kept back in case of possible spills, leaks, fires, other emergency scenes. So again, we have a pretty minor car wreck, it looks like, but a crowd is starting to gather around that situation. We need to keep that crowd back. So these guys are up here working, and you see they kind of built this barrier right here with firefighters to keep this crowd back. And that firefighter carrying that axe right there, that's probably a pretty good determinant, uh, deterrent to keep those people away from the scene. Again, control the scene. Do what we can to make our jobs easier, controlling that scene. Provide light. Again, we have floodlights on three sides of that ambulance, on all the left, right, and the back. We have headlights on the front of our ambulance. Turn those lights on to light up that scene so we can see what we're doing. Again, if we need to move furniture, move the furniture. Make our job easier. Again, if it's a crime scene, it's something we do need to be cautious of, but if we have to move furniture to better take care of our patients, move the furniture. Again, consider moving the patient from the scene into the back of the truck. Again, keep an eye out for escape routes. Know if something goes wrong, how are we going to get out of here? Pay attention to bystanders. Bystanders can oftentimes become dangerous towards us. And we also need to look out for their safety in certain situations as well. We need to anticipate rather than react. So control the scene or the scene is going to control you. We need to stay calm, use tact, diplomacy, brush up on your verbal judo to try to de-escalate situations. We don't want to escalate situations. Be flexible. We're going to go in there with an awesome game plan in many situations, and that game plan is going to fall apart pretty quickly in a lot of situations. So we have to be able to be flexible and adapt to what we see, what's going on. Be open-minded, be alert, 
and be compassionate. Again, we are there to help sick and injured. Maintain situational awareness. Again, your scene size up is a dynamic, ongoing process. We are constantly reevaluating the scene for dangers. Remain vigilant. Again, things can change very quickly. And maintain scene awareness as well as patient awareness as well. We got to keep our eyes on both. We got to constantly monitor that scene for any changes, making sure that our safety is still good. At the same time, we're having to keep a close eye on that patient, checking on them, assessing them, treating them, making sure they're not going to crash on us as well. So the large component of this scene size up is going to be those scene safety factors. Another component of scene say, or the scene size up is determining the nature of problem. What's going on? Nature of the problem is the patient's problem. <clears throat> so the patient's problem may be a trauma condition or it may be a medical condition. Trauma patients, a trauma is a physical injury caused by external forces. So it's an injury, falls, shooting, stabbings, et cetera. Those are all traumatic injuries. Medical conditions are brought on by illness. And oftentimes we can, we get from dispatch what type of call we're going on. So it can, information that starts you on the call, but it may be incomplete or inaccurate. Again, dispatch only has very limited information. So if we get dispatched to, to a chest pain and we get out there and it's a fall, don't be 100% shocked and don't get so caught up in chest pain that we get uh, tunnel visioned on that one specific complaint told to dispatch. So mechanism of injury, which is abbreviated MOI. If we're talking about MOI, we're talking about trauma. So mechanism of injury is how the patient was injured. What happened to the patient that caused this injury? That's your mechanism of injury. We consider the strength, direction, and nature of forces. And we're going to use this mechanism of injury to develop an index of suspicion for specific injuries. So patient was a unrestrained driver of a car traveling highway speed that was ejected from the windshield. That's a very significant mechanism of injury. So based on that, we're going to start thinking, well, where is this patient likely going to be all injured at? And how significant? If he was ejected, it's probably going to be pretty significant. We're going to worry about head and neck injuries, internal bleeding, so forth. So again, just based on what happened, we can kind of start thinking about what type of patient we're going to be dealing with. Again, this kind of starts with our dispatch information. If dispatch tells us we're going on a car pit, a five-year-old was run over by a pickup truck traveling 50 miles an hour, approximately 50 miles an hour, we know we're probably going on a pretty bad car wreck. Significant mechanism of injury. We also get some of this information by looking and examining the scene as well. Some situations should create a high index of suspicion. So things like if we're dealing with the fall, based on certain aspects of the fall, how high the fall was, what part of the body hit first, et cetera, we should have that high that index of suspicion of how significant and where that patient is injured. MBCs or motorcycle crashes, recreational vehicles, ATVs, boats, side-by-sides, 
in contact or recreational sports as well. We're dealing with car versus pedestrians. Carpeds is what we call it. We know that for the pedestrian anyway, if there was a, any relatively any amount of speed, it's probably going to be pretty bad off for that kid for the pedestrian. Explosions. With explosions, there's often very specific injury patterns. We worry about hollow organs rupturing, eardrums rupturing, rupturing, shrapnel, so penetrating injury, throws where the patient's getting thrown across the, the area as well. Shootings, stabbings, burns. And again, we'll talk more about this once we get into the trauma section as well. So if we are getting dispatched to a fall or our patient fell, there's things that we're going to want to know to help us determine this mechanism of injury. The greatest factor for falls is going to be the distance of the fall. Was it just from standing or was the patient 20 feet up on a third or second, second or third story building? We want to know what type of surface the patient landed on. Did they land in water? Did they land on grass, concrete? At a certain point, surface really doesn't matter. Even if they land in water from very, very high fall, it can still be pretty uh, dramatic. And we also want to know what body part impacted first. Did they fall supine, prone? Did they head, fall, head first, feet first, etc.? For MVCs, things we want to look at. Height of impact is going to be pretty major as well. And those types of impacts are going to influence the injury patterns that we know. So was it a head-on or a frontal collision? Was it a rear-end collision? Again, we see different injury patterns with these type of collisions. Was it a side or lateral impact collision like a T-bone? A rotational impact where the vehicle was struck and then our patient's vehicle spun around? Or was it a rollover? So if we're dealing with MVCs, if we see any of these items, that is going to signify a significant MVC or a significant mechanism of injury. So if there is deformity to the vehicle that is greater than 20 inches, if it bent that car more than 20 inches, that was a significant amount of force that that vehicle went through during that impact. If there's intrusion into the passenger compartment, meaning a portion of the vehicle was pushed into the passenger compartment. If the vehicle axle was displaced, it typically takes quite a bit of force to displace that axle or if it was a rollover. So again, all of those should tell us, hey, this was a pretty hard hit that's increasing the likelihood that our patient has a significant injury. Impact marks on the windshield called by, caused by the patient striking the windshield. Again, now we're worrying about neck spinal injuries and we're also worried about head injuries if the patient struck the windshield. Missing rearview mirror, kind of the same note. Patient may have got thrown into that rearview mirror, knocking it off. Not only that, it does take significant force for a rearview mirror to get knocked off. If we note the steering wheel is collapsed or any deformity to that steering wheel, that's caused by the patient's body striking 
the steering wheel. Again, that may directly correspond to chest, thoracic injuries, and abdominal injuries. For that's what likely struck the, the, the steering wheel. And it does take a lot of force. Broken seats, kind of the same thing. It takes a lot of force to break a seat. And not only that, the seat belts are may have not been as effective if the total seat was uh, broken. Side door damage. The sides of the vehicle where the doors are offers the least amount of protection for the occupants inside. Cracked or smashed dash dashboard. Again, patient's body may have struck that, causing the damage. Deformed pedals can indicate lower extremity injuries on our patients. And again, we're dealing with an MVC. We always want to assess for safety devices. Was the patient restrained wearing a seatbelt? Did they have airbags? Did their airbags deploy in that vehicle? <clears throat> Other indicators of serious mechanism of injuries from an NBC. Anytime somebody was ejected from a vehicle, that's always considered a significant or critical mechanism of injury. Another thing is there's death or very significant injury of another occupant of the, in the same vehicle should increase the suspicion of significant injury. So if me, so if our patient was riding with another person that got involved in the NBC, both of those people are going to go through very similar forces inside that vehicle. If that force was enough to kill one of our patients, that should tell us that, it, that the other patient that's not dead also went through significant amounts of force. So again, that automatically increases that to a critical mechanism of injury. Motorcycle crashes. Again, we want to attempt to determine the impact type and whether the patient was wearing a helmet is going to be an important aspect as well. So was it head-on? Was it an angular impact? Was the patient ejected? And Motorcycles don't have restraints, so if a patient gets in a motorcycle wreck, chances are they're going to become separated from that motorcycle. For us, we want to try to determine, do they were they truly ejected, or did they lay the bike down? Laying the bike down is potentially putting the bike into a skid and letting them go to separate themselves, trying to avoid a big impact. Recreational vehicles, ATVs, boats. Rollovers, crush injuries are common. Four-wheelers especially, are they go over rough terrain. They're very powerful. They're also pretty unstable. So if you roll in a four-wheeler, it's probably going to roll over your patient as well. Severe impacts with trees, rocks, other vehicles. And something that's pretty unique, especially to ATVs, is clothesline type of injuries. Patient was hauling bud on his four-wheeler, didn't see a low tree branch, and it clips them right here and knocks them off that ATV. Penetrating trauma. With calls for shootings or stabbings, we need to expose and assess for injuries. We get dispatched to a shooting, stabbing, et cetera, we're probably removing the vast majority of their clothes. Can't treat what we can't see. So cut clothing to look at the injuries. Expose unresponsive trauma patients to look for penetrating injuries. And don't forget, especially with shootings, very good possibility there is 
an entrance wound and an exit wound. So if we just see, say patient tells us they got shot one time, we expose the chest and we see a penetrating wound right here, still a possibility there's another wound from that exit wound. So make sure that we're fully assessing, looking for both wounds. Log roll, make sure that we are checking the posterior or the back of the patients as well. So again, here's penetrating trauma. Possibly to me, it looks like a gunshot wound to the patient's chest. So again, make sure that we expose that. Externally doesn't look very bad. That can be very life-threatening to the patient. So again, we need to take steps to immediately cover that. We also need to make sure we're doing an assessment to see if there's any more penetrating wounds on the patient as well. Blast injuries, explosions, injuries may be caused by pressure wave from the blast, that fast, fast moving air as it passes through that patient's body can cause damage, mainly the hollow organs and the ears. That pressure wave can also carry debris with it. So flying debris can also enter, enter our patients or injure our patients. Fast moving air can also propel or throw our patient against other objects into the ground. And heat is normally accompanied with those explosions. So we can also get burns to the patient as well. So that's mechanism of injury. Again, mechanism of injury is what happened to cause the injury to the patient. We do need to look at the mechanism of injury. So if we go on a car wreck, we need to look at those vehicles, look to see where the damage is, look to see if airbags deployed, et cetera. So on the flip side to that, if we're dealing with a medical patient, now we're dealing with the nature of illness or the NOI. NOI is not a diagnosis, but it's an attempt to narrow down the nature of the problem or what is causing the patient's complaints. Again, we consider dispatch information we get from dispatch, what the patient is telling us, what family members are telling us, and clues at the scene. Again, we're just trying to figure out kind of what's going on with the patient. So to determine the nature of illness, consider these clues. So evaluate the scene as we're walking through the scene to get to patient's side. Is there medications on scene? If there is, we need to note what those medications are. We're also kind of looking out for any top signs of drug use, alcohol use, indications that the patient may have chronic history, like is there oxygen machines in their house? Do they Are they sleeping on a hospital-type bed inside a private residence? Tells us there's something majorly wrong with them if they have that. How we see the patient, so the position and the condition of the patient. Where are they at? How are they sitting? The environment that we find them in as well. Looking at the house as we walk through it. Is the house nice, clean, or is it extremely dirty? Especially with geriatrics, dirty house may indicate the patient's unable to take care of themselves. Especially in elderly as well, notice the temperature in the house or the poor. Do they have heat or air conditioning on during the summer or winter months, et cetera? Again, the key is to study both the patient and the scene. Determine the number of patients. If there are multiple patients, call for additional help. Now, in a lot of situations, depending on how critical the patient is, 
one ambulance can carry more than one patient to the hospital. However, if the patient's critical, they need our full undivided attention. So we may need to call for additional ambulances if we do have multiple patients. Evaluate the scene, look for clues. When indicated, we want to activate your multiple casualty incident plan. If we have more patients than a certain threshold, then your service probably has a multiple casualty incident plan where we request however many ambulances we need, supervisors probably going to get dispatched and so forth. And we're going to treat it like a mass casualty incident. If we have multiple patients, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about two patients on scene or 20 patients on scene, we if there's multiple patients, we have to perform triage. We need to determine who needs to be taken to the hospital first and who is going to be okay to wait a little bit longer. And anytime we're dealing with requesting help, the key is to request that help early. And it's always better to call more resources than needed than it is to call too few resources. We can always cancel resources that we do not need. So in summary, scene size up is the initial step in the patient assessment. It's an initial evaluation of the scene. The goals of the scene size up are to ensure safety. Nature of, the, nature of the problem, either mechanism of injury or nature of illness, and to determine the need for additional resources. Again, part of that scene safety is to take the appropriate PPE standard precautions as well. Okay, any questions over chapter?